So we've been in a really quick little series here related to Christmas, and we've been trying, trying to have just a little bit of fun with some of the lessons we've learned from Jesus from our study of the Gospel of Mark, which we've interrupted for just a short season because Mark doesn't talk about Christmas at all. So it's kind of hard to do a Christmas series out of Mark when there is no Christmas story in Mark. So, um, but, you know, um, one of the things we've learned is that through his use of parables, Jesus has taught us that everyday life, physical life, can teach us a lot of spiritual lessons. And we've been trying to connect that with our experience of Christmas lights, right? Some lessons we can learn from that. And, and light has been associated with the event of Christmas, I think, ever since the Apostle John, you know, as God inspired him to write, so in him was life, and the life was the light of men, right? And ever since that moment, I think they've been using light to represent kind of what God has done for us in Christ that began in the Christmas story. You know, when he goes on to say, you know, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. And we have lights that are a part of our Christmas experience everywhere, right? How many of you have lights on your Christmas tree, right? Multicolored, white. Who are the white traditionalists? We got those on? Multicolored? Those of you who rotate back and forth like mine? About every 10 seconds? You know, we, we, we have, you see lights in windows, right? We have the advent wreath. The list just kind of goes on and on. Sometimes it gets really big scale. I was going to a meeting the other day in Northboro, and it was right around dark, and I was going by Tower Hill over in Boylston, and there's a cop standing in the middle of the road waving me into the parking lot. I'm like, no, 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 I'm not going in there for the lights, because it's huge stuff in there. They have this, we've been there, they do displays all over Tower Hill, and and it's marvelous, but it turns into big stuff. When we were down on the South Shore, they used to do the same thing with the Eaterville Railroad in Carver right? You know, and uh, we never did it, but we lived down that way, but we never went. It's big stuff, right? And then some of us really get into it big on the outside of our houses, right? So we're going to dim the lights here. I'm going to show you a couple examples that I found on the internet of people who go all in when it comes to Christmas lights, right? So, so we're, we're talking about putting up Christmas lights. This guy spent some time putting up Christmas lights, didn't he? Probably started in July, right? And started working at it, but a massive one. Here, look at the next one. And that is not a digital display from some floodlight, right? This is something he put up. Look at the last one, next one. Now, that's not a house, so they cheat a little bit. They paid some guys to put that one up, right? But then you look at this next one. That's our house, actually. Christine and our house. And this is what I will say. We have the best lights within 100 yards of our house. I just want you to know that. So we are, we are leading in our neighborhood. But there's a big difference between those lights, right? I mean, you, you look at the first three slides. Those guys invested a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of money. They went through the exact same thing I did, right? They had to get the lights out. They had to untangle them. They had to test them all out and all that kind of stuff. And we talked about that last week in terms of preparing for Christmas, making room for God in our lives. But the difference between their lights and my lights is that they spent a lot more effort planning what they were going to do. And they spent a lot more effort putting the actual lights up. And believe it or not, there's an incredible message for us in that simple reality. That our spiritual lives, how 
good they are, the quality of them, whether they're kind of ordinary, whether they're mediocre, or whether they're non-existent, or whether they're just off the charts great, a lot of it comes down to, literally, do we have a plan, and are we really executing that plan, right? You know, Jesus said that one of the reasons why he came, he tells us in John chapter 10, verse 10, is that he came that we might have life and have it abundantly, And one of the fallacies I think we often buy into is this idea that that abundance should just happen without any effort on our part at all. I mean, if God's so great, why do I have to do anything in order for me to have abundant life? And I got to tell you, for you and I to have the kind of life that God's trying to give us in Jesus Christ, in the here and now, in its fullness, it takes planning and it takes effort. Sometimes I think we just think, well, it, it should just happen. We should feel it. It should come natural. God's spiritual man. You know, and we do it. It takes effort, and it takes planning. You know, and, and believe it or not, the Christmas story took some planning. What happened in the manger in Bethlehem 2,000-plus years ago took some planning and some effort. You know, the, the verse that I put on your handout for you to take notes under is, is from, Mark, from Matthew chapter 1. I'd love you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. So here's what I want to do. I want to, today, I want to show us that God planned and then executed in detail an elaborate plan to make Christmas happen. And what I want to prove to you is that planning is actually spiritual. (laughs) And taking effort to put stuff up, to get the lights up so it looks a lot better than my house, is worth the effort, and we should put the effort in to get that done. And so the the passage you come up with, and and if you're using one of the Bibles that's underneath your chair, if you didn't happen to bring one with you, we'd love for you to grab one. We we have one underneath every chair. If if it's not, and if you don't happen to have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. But I I just want to pull out one quote. From Matthew chapter 1, this is page, we always give page numbers, 814 in your pew Bible, chair Bible, whatever we call those, the book that's under, there we go, uh, the one that's up underneath your seat. He says, verse 22, um, Matthew chapter 1, and it would help it if I was in chapter 1 and not chapter 2. Here we go. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And this is the point that Matthew's not going to let go of for, for, for quite a while here in his gospel. Let me just point, just, just keep your finger right there and just kind of follow along. Let me just point out a few things to you, right? That, and, and again, I, I'm trying to come back to this idea that, that our spiritual vitality, our experience of the abundant life, it's not something that just happens because God waves this magical Holy Spirit over us. It's because we join in God in developing a plan and then putting that plan into action. We put the lights up according to the plan, right? And, and look, look at the things that he says here. Verse 23, right, the very next verse. He quotes a passage from Isaiah. So this is embedded in the story of, of, of him speaking to Joseph and et cetera and telling him not to be afraid to, to, to marry the child, to marry Mary and that kind of stuff. And in the midst of this, this is what he quotes from verse 23. It's in the black there. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel. Right? This is a quote from Isaiah. Isaiah lived 
over 700 years before Christmas happened. 700 years. Where were you 700 years ago? I, I, that's a stupid question. You know what I mean. I, it's not like God just said, oh, yeah, let's make this happen, and next day it starts, right? I mean, he, he's been planning this for 700 years. In fact, Paul tells us that he actually started planning it before he spoke the first part of creation into existence. But we're not, we're not done in Matthew's story because he goes on with it. Just, just follow over and turn it to chapter 2. Very next page, 814. And here is a reference that comes to us out of Micah. Now, Micah probably was a couple of decades earlier than Isaiah, right? So he's about 750 B.C. That's 750 years before Jesus is born. And Micah is predicting what God's going to do through a little nondescript village that nobody would even notice because it's just a wide spot in the road, a place called Bethlehem. He says, you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, verse 6, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. God had a plan, waited seven and a half centuries to bring it to happen. God developed the plan. He executes the plan. The flight continues on. A little bit further down on that same column, you get into verse 15 and you know, interluding in there is that, you know, you have, you have this experience where these magi show up from the east, and they're asking about, well, where's he who's born king of the Jews? And, and this really freaks out the guy who's currently the king, right? Because he thinks one of his own kids is going to be king, except for he's killing most of his kids because he doesn't trust them. You know, the guy's name is Herod, right? And, and, and so he's like, well, wh- where is he supposed to be born? And he, and, and, well, Bethlehem, that's what we just read. And, and, but these guys, they're... they're, they're they're prompted by God's spirit not to go back through Jerusalem, and they leave the country in a different way. So the only thing Herod can think of, and this shows you where his mind and heart is, how low humanity can fall into its sinfulness. He said, well, you know, the only way to be safe about the security of my throne was just to wipe out everybody, right, who's under the age of two in the region around Bethlehem. And we have, the, we have this, this infanticide that takes place. But in the midst of that, God speaks to Joseph. He says, you know what? Book a ticket. You're going to Egypt. And then when, God, when, when, when Herod dies, it, it, et cetera, he returns. And in, in verse 15, it says, out of Egypt, I called my son. And this is a quote from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. This also is a plan that was spoken 700 years or more before Jesus was born, right? And then, and then you go on, and in verse 18, this is actually a quote from Jeremiah. And, 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 and Jeremiah was about 620 years, 650 years before Jesus was born. And it says, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they were no more. This is, again, a, a testimony, a, a prophecy about the pain that was going to come to the region where Jesus was born because of what Herod did. 600 years before. God had a plan, didn't he? And you know what? 
I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I complain, I kind of whine, gripe a little bit about how complicated Christmas gets. You know, and, and, and just, so, just so you all know you're all on equal footing, I never mail out Christmas cards, right? Because it's just my way of the revolt of the busyness of Christmas, right? But I buy into most of the rest of it. But it's cooking and decorating and shopping and parties and family. and it's just go, There's all kinds of activity. Well, God didn't spare any expense either in details. I mean, you got stars and magi and shepherds and angels and angelic choruses, and the list just goes on. I mean, God developed a plan, and he executed it at the top level. And, And again, I just want to hammer on us that our spiritual journey of taking what Christmas offers us to have a relationship with God and live out the, the new life that he gives us in Jesus Christ in this world, it takes a plan that you and I have to execute. And so really my big thought to you is said, what's your plan? What's your plan? Right? I mean, you know, it, what, what is our plan for really executing what God's given to us in Jesus Christ? I mean, because that's really where, where, where it comes down to. We can talk, but... Sometimes I think we just, you know, well, I'll just, I'll just drift. Or, or if your plan is simply, I'll just go to church most Sundays. Your, your lights are going to look like mine. Right? But if you want to have lights that look like the other three ones, you've got to have a much better plan than that, right? You know, what we do and the effort we put into it is going to determine whether or not our experience of abundance is just barely on the meter or whether we're pegging it all the way to the top. And so I want to give you three areas to think about in terms of having a plan for your spiritual life. We could talk about how to develop the plan, what steps should be a part of it, but that's not where I want to go today. We don't have time to to do all of it, but I do want to talk about, I think, are several areas that really connect into the core of the Christian message, the Christmas message to us. And to challenge us to think about what is your spiritual plan? What's my spiritual plan to make these things happen? To, 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 to engage with God and not let my walk with God, my spirituality just kind of be, eh, but to actually have that abundant life that Jesus came to give to us. So your lights don't look like mine, but they look a lot like the others. My wife is groaning. Of course, she doesn't help with the outside lights at all. So, because it's always cold when we're doing it. I told that story last last week. I'm going to move you to a non-Christmas part of the Bible. Move, turn over with me if you would to the Book of Ephesians. The Book of Ephesians. I'll give you a page number in just a moment. Nine ninety four will kind of get you into the heart of what we're going to be talking about today. The book of Ephesians is probably one of the most concise, but, and, and with that, it, you know, it's very dense, so it can be really hard for us to get all the pieces that Paul's trying, but it's a very concise outworking that God leads Paul through about what does it really mean that Christ has stepped into the world and we've become God's children through our faith in Jesus Christ, and what are the implications for us and our standing with God and the way we do life and et cetera. So the book of Ephesians is really heavy. And in the beginning of it, Paul talks about the fact this is something God's been doing since, since before the beginning of creation. So, and um, I think that was the loudest sneeze I've heard in quite a while. 
So I think it happened somewhere in the back over there. We don't want anybody to be embarrassed. Uh, there we go. <laughs> All right. These are in no particular order, right? These are in no particular order. But I just want to highlight three things to you. So just Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. And we're going to come back to verses 8 and 9, which are, are, are central for us. But just look at, listen to this statement. Because Jesus has stepped into the world, God's Son has come, and he's fulfilled his role of giving us life, and life abundantly through a relationship with him. This is what he says, for we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. And here's my simple question. What is your plan about doing good works? Not, not you know, it's, it's not, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to be able to ask that question. But what is your plan? How, and and how, how aggressive, how eager, how much effort are you putting into executing the plan to actually do these good works that God's designed you for? Right, I mean, let me go back and read it again. So, for we're his creation, right? So God sits down at the drafting table. He comes up with the specs and he engineers us. And the way that we function at that point, right? Just like when I, when I, when I push, now I push the button on my dash to start my car. There's a whole lot of pieces that have to go to work when it starts up. That's what I expect it to do, right? Expect my car to turn on. Can't hear it because it's a hybrid. But it turns on and then I can go somewhere in it, Right? When, when God pushed the button on us, he designed us for good works. So what's your plan to serve, to do good works? I mean, we're all unique, aren't we? I mean, we, we, we have different spiritual giftedness, whole different message. We've got questions in that area, we certainly can address that. We have, we have different backgrounds and experiences. We have different personalities. We have different expertise. We have different interests, all those kinds of things. But you can take all this stuff and, and let it be a little overwhelming, but it comes down to the fact is, what is our plan to do the good works that God has designed us for? And that's different for me than it is for my wife, than it is to Sue, right? And right on down the line, right? It, it, it's different for each one of us. But a part of you and I taking Christmas Taking the life that Jesus has given us and having that abundantly is actually having a plan for the way that God wants to use our lives to leave a huge spiritual imprint on the world. One of the greatest realities, God did not design us to walk through this life as his children and leave no mark on the world. He specifically said, I want you to let your light shine before men that they may see your good works. And as a result of seeing them, noticing them, you've left a footprint, something that can be traced, that I want them to glorify your Father who is in heaven. So what is our plan for good works? And so that's one of the areas I'd say, you know, if if you're really, because Jesus Christ said, I have come not to be served, right? So Christmas, he comes, and he didn't come to be served, he came to serve, right? He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom to many. You and I, if we're going to embrace the Christmas story, right, we're going to get all the lights out of the garage and untangle them and test them and make sure they all work, and it's not going to look elaborate. 
It's not going to look like the first three unless we really put them up. Cause we, and we've got to have a plan to do that, right? You know, it's not like in, in the movies where they, they got a light gun and, and they just go up. Because you guys have been there, right? I mean, it, it's a lot of effort. I was, this is, wasn't in my notes, but I'm going to tell the story anyway. Uh, I was watching the news the other day, and they all, in the morning, I, I watched NECN quite a bit in the morning just to get the weather because they spent a lot of time on it, but, and it, especially when it comes to weekends because I want to know if it's going to snow on Sunday. And, and, but they were, they were reviewing this product where it was like a pole, and you could stick these magnetic hooks up onto your, onto your eave, you know, and then hang the lights on them, and they were testing to see, you know, and that's just a living testimony. It's a lot of work to put your lights up, right, you know? It, it takes a lot of effort. And, and, and he said, I've designed you. Part of this, I've designed you. You've been created in Christ. And this is what, for good works. What's your plan? And, and, and that's something we need to work out if we're really going to live life abundantly. So here's the second one. I'm glad I don't have to do this twice. I wouldn't have enough energy. So anyways, um, this one's far, a lot more sobering, Right? But I think it's very powerful for us. So read down just a little bit. Paul, Paul wades into an area, God's leadership, where he's talking about how Christ wasn't just the God of the Jews. He wasn't just the Messiah or the Savior for the Jews, but he's the Savior of the whole world. And up until this point in time, there had been this, this, this border wall. <laughs> it's been in the news a lot lately, right? This border wall. Between the Gentiles and the Jews, the Jews and there was no connection, and the whole it was just brutal. And and he's talking about how Jesus, as the Messiah, when he came, he broke down that wall. And we pick it up in verse fourteen. He says, "For he is our peace, and he made both groups one, and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. And his flesh, read incarnation." That's what we're going to celebrate on Tuesday, right? The incarnation. In his flesh, he did away with the law of the commandments and regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both both to God in one body through the cross and put the hostility to death by it. When Christ came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to those who were far away and to those who were new. And through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So, listen, I'm heavy theological sledding in here. I I, I don't want to do injustice to the text, but I just want to grab a main idea and pull it out for us. Part of the impact of the coming of Christ that started in the manger in Bethlehem and ended with his ascension going into heaven, is that he wants us to have great relationships. He doesn't want us to have broken relationships. He wants us to have great relationships. Now, there's a part of this application you could take this way, and it would be very appropriate and real. This would be an issue that really speaks to us about some of the racial and ethnic divides that we have that's going on in our world. And I read a passage like this, and, I, and, and it's a time when I think that, that we as the Bible-believing Christians ought to be the ones who are leading the charge in the area of reconciliation. Because Christ has broken down all the enmity, right? Now, that doesn't mean there aren't good and bad people in the world and all that kind of stuff and national security, but fundamentally, we ought to be people who are sending the hand out 
and saying, come in. And, and, and part of our shame is that we've left a lot of that challenge to those who are theologically suspect. And we've gone on to something else as the evangelical church. And believe it or not, I, I don't know if you know, but we have people from a number of different ethnic groups and nationalities that worship with us. Brazilians, Jamaicans, Kenyans. You know, let's just, you know, and, and, I, and, and, and I wonder how actively we're extending the hand and say, you know what, you're a part of the family. Just because you've got a little bit of an accent or whatever. And, and so are we really building those great relationships? But so, but so let me just take that. That's a profound thing for us to process and think about. But let me just make it very personal for us. Because this is something we experience more. The, the impact of having bro- broken relationships in our immediate network is really painful around Christmas, isn't it? If you have a parent that you haven't spoken to or they won't speak to you, that's a killer at Christmas, right? If you have a brother or a sister that, that you, you just don't talk to, they don't, or they don't talk to you, they don't like you or whatever, you feel it at Christmas, right? You know, if, if, if you have a child that you're alienated from. It's just brutal at Christmas. And, and when Jesus stepped into this, and you could bring in love thy neighbor, and all this, I believe we're, we're standing on solid ground with a biblical witness, but you and I actually have to have a plan in our lives on how to have great relationships. Is, is that too simple of a truth for us to look at? And, you know, and I think what happens is we, we drift through all the other priorities and we hope just great relationships happen on the side, right? And we got work, we got this and that, whatever. And we just hope somewhere in there some good stuff will happen so that when I won't die alone, right? And, and, and we have to have a plan for great relationships. We also have to have a plan for reconciliation. And again, that's a whole different message. Let me just kind of lob the bomb and let the Holy Spirit work with you. And developing a plan for having great relationships in your life. Got one last one. And we're going to skip over to chapter 4 from Ephesians. And then we'll, we'll, we'll move to a conclusion. And, and, it, and, and what we're going to deal with here is very much in the center of what we're talking about today. Paul's saying, God has given you a great opportunity. He says, so this is what you've got to do. You've got to put off the old self. You've got to learn some new stuff, and you've got to start living the new stuff. Listen to the way he puts it, picking up with verse 20 of chapter 4, 996. He says, but this is not how you learned about the Messiah, assuming that you've heard him and taught, were taught by him because the truth is in Jesus. He says, you took off your former way of life, the old man that's corrupted by deceitful desires, You're being renewed in the spirit of your minds, and you put on the new man, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of truth. So, again, oversimplifying the text, but standing on solid biblical ground. You and I have to have a plan to grow in our faith. Right? I mean, if we don't want our Christmas lights to look like mine, Right? If we don't want our spiritual life to look like the lights that are in front of my house, but we want them to be the dazzling ones that everybody wants to stop and say, wow, look at that. that he must serve a great God. We have to have a plan to grow. And, 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 and it, it, Paul just embeds it right in here. He says, here's the, here's, here are three parts of the plan you've got to have. One, you have to figure out what am I going to stop? What parts of your lifestyle, your habits, 
your perspectives, your attitudes, whatever it is, what part is it you're just going to shed and stop and stop doing? You've got to put off the old self. The second thing you've got to do is you've got to learn some new stuff. Right? You, you know, you've got to reprogram it a little bit. You've got to turn that PC into a Mac. You know, I don't think that's possible. But, uh, but you, you know, you've got to reprogram. So you've got to learn something new. And then you've got to start doing some new stuff. You've got to be different. And, and, and I know that's an oversimplification. But, man, when you apply that to your spiritual life, and we've done this before in the last Sundays of the year, just say, what is it that you need to stop doing? And what is it you need to start doing? And you know what? Everybody who's been in attendance at those services, they know what they got to do. This isn't rocket science. The issue is just drawing it up into a plan that we actually work, that we not only get the lights out of the garage and finally get them untangled to make sure they all work, but we, we have a plan and we work the plan to put up a great Christmas display. Or in our terms, we really live the abundant life that God has for us. You, you, you got to have a plan to serve. You got to have a, because that's what Jesus came to do. That's what Christmas is all about. You got to have a plan for great relationships because that's what Jesus came to do, to connect us back to God and to one another and him. And you got to have a plan to grow because he's made us new creatures in Christ and we start out as spiritual babies and we grow. And so really, it, it, and, you know, I know it's Christmas. So let me just, just write this on the back of your handout, right? And stick it in your Bible. Pick it up after New Year, right? But simply ask yourself the question, what's my plan? God is trying to give you the heavens. What's your plan for tapping into it? I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And, and, and really, I think it's a sobering thing. Let's go back and say, what, what, did I have a plan in 2018? I think a lot of us can look, eh, well, I might have started out, but by January 10th, it was gone, right? Just like John 10, January 10th, it's gone. And after that, I'm just trying to survive, right? Let's have a plan because that's what Jesus came to give us. He gave us the opportunity. He came to give us the opportunity as children of God to have an amazing relationship with him make a huge difference in this world, and be blessed by relationships that are out of this world. But it takes a plan submitted to the Lord. You know, there's a proverb that says the, 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 the simple, let me do, I want to say it right, so I'm going to back up to my, to my verse. Let me just turn over to it in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 15. And so this will be my final challenge. The inexperienced, the simple, they believe anything. They, they just believe what they see. But the sensible, the prudent, they watch their steps. The prudent think about their ways is the way, another way you put it. I'm challenging you today as a part of experiencing the light that God's trying to give us in Christ is to think about your way and have a plan as we go forward. And that plan always starts in faith. Let's pray together. God, I realize today that a lot of us would have just loved this, this very uplifting, encouraging, rah-rah kind of message that, that affirms just how special we are to you. And we are, Father. 
But Father, I pray that even as this, this kind of heavy load has been laid out on top of us, we'd embrace it as a gift. The, the challenge of having a plan and really working that plan would be received as a gift that we could really experience all the life that you're trying to give us in Jesus Christ. Father, allow us to really enjoy the days that are ahead of really celebrating the gift of your love in our lives through the person of Jesus Christ. But as we turn the corner into the new year, let us really work the plan to experience the abundant life that you're trying to give to us. For this is, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I think it's really appropriate for us today to remember the ultimate way through which Jesus served us, and that's through communion. We, we, we usually do communion at a different time of the month, but we, we moved it over to this time because we knew we would all be together, and it's not something we often get to do. So I'm going to ask those who are going to serve to go ahead and take their place in the back. Just listen to these words as they call us to remember the greatest gift that God ever gave us, which is a way back to him, despite our sin. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, he blessed it, broke it, and he gave it out to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And after he gave thanks, he said to them, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood that establishes the covenant, this new relationship, this new way of connecting with God, this covenant, it is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. God, as we come to your table today, we give you thanks that there's a way back to you no matter where we're at, whether we're far away, whether we're really, really far away or if we think we're already back home, there's a way to get closer to you. And it's because of who Jesus was, the life that he lived, the fact that he came, and why he died. For that, we give you thanks today in Jesus' name. Amen.